Good morning, everyone. Uh, so excited to be worshiping with you today and studying God's Word. Uh, but I'm really excited also because we're going to be joining together. Uh, again, we're going to be back in this building together, worshiping with one another face-to-face here in two weeks on June 7th. Uh, looking forward to seeing you and worshiping with you here on premises. Uh, we're continuing our series on But God today, and I uh, just want to give you a quick recap of what we talked about last week. We reviewed that psalm last week that says, My heart will fail, my flesh will fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We said uh, that we should desire nothing on heaven or earth besides God. And we said that desiring other things along with God, even if we desire God more, when we desire things along with God, that, that is an act of spiritual adultery, and it breaks God's heart. We talked about that scripture where Paul was talking about being crucified to the world, and the world was crucified to him. And we must walk in that same path. We must walk in a way that the world has no hold on us, and we have relinquished our hold on the world. We discussed the fact that when we try to accomplish God's plan through our flesh, it puts us outside of his will. We know that in that place what we're doing is we're just leaning on our own flesh, we're leaning on our own knowledge and strength and ability, and we can't justify that by saying that we're trying to accomplish God's will or his plan for our life. In fact, what that does is it sets us outside of his plan and we will never succeed. Rather, we have to put our hope in him. We know that our sin nature is deceptive because it was born in deceit. Our hearts were never meant to be led by the flesh. Our hearts were never meant to be led by sin. But because of what happened in the garden, we are subject to sin. We're born into a condition where we have a sin nature. But it's God's desire through the sacrifice of Christ that that sin nature, it has been defeated. And instead of surrendering to it, we surrender to God. And we talked about a way that we do that is that we captivate or we must take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. We have to consider every whim. We have to evaluate every desire. We must, when we identify something that does not align with God or his word or what we know his will to be or what his spirit is speaking to us, it says we have to take it captive. We put it in irons and we make it obedient to Christ. We subject it to the truth of who God is and so that that allows us to be transformed. And finally, last week we talked about the fact that in our weakness, Christ's power is put on complete display. And we know that we must boast in our weakness because when we are weak, it is through him that we are made strong. One of the the things that impacted me the most from our conversation last week was where Jesus, he he went to Paul and when he called Paul, you know, he spoke to him. And then in 2 Corinthians, when Paul is crying out to God to relieve him from that thorn that was in his side. It was Jesus that spoke to him and said, my grace is sufficient for you. And the message that we saw with that is that the same grace that saved us is strong enough and will sustain us through everything that God has called us to. Today we're continuing our But God series, and we might take a little bit of a, of a detour. You might say, well, John, you might, you're taking a little bit of liberty with this title, but you know, I, I think you're going to allow it once, you, once we dive into the truth that we want to talk about today. Uh, but before we do, I want to pray, and I want to pray that we are just hearers of God's Word, but not hearers only, but ready to be doers of the Word. Let us hear what God has to say and let it motivate us, let it change us and challenge us and inspire us to action and to bring us to a place where we act on what God tells us to do and then we allow Him to change us from the inside out. 
Let's pray. Father, I come to you today in complete awe of who you are, in complete awe of your spirit, of your power, of your, of your love, and your grace, and your mercy. Father, I, I thank you for the gift of your son Jesus, and I thank you for the transformation that he continually makes in me. God, I just ask that as we dive into your word today, as we speak and, and consider and discuss your truth, Lord, we, we cast aside everything in our life that would distract us and be a burden. We lay aside all of uh, those things that would separate us from you. We ask you, Lord, we give you permission to come in and cut them away from us, God. Make us more like you even right now. Let us hear your word that is being spoken by your spirit, God. And let us not just be hearers in in nothing else, Lord, but inspire us to action. Bring us to a place. Challenge us today to do something about what your word tells us. We thank you for this, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So the but God we're going to be talking about today comes from the book of Isaiah. And it's likely a familiar passage. It's found in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. It says, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Like I said, you might say, well, John, you're taking a little bit of liberty. It doesn't say, but God. But I think what we can agree on is we're talking about God's word. And so when we say, but God, it's but God's word lasts forever. And you've probably heard these passage or this passage before where it says the grass fades and, and the flowers fall, but the word of God stands forever. And there's a lot of encouragement there to know that God's word is eternal, to know that it's constant, to know that it's there and that, you know, the things of this world, they may you know, fall away or pass away, but we have hope because it is God and his word that lasts forever. Now, one of the things that I think is important for us to realize is honestly, like when we look at this passage, I've shared with you before the importance of understanding the context of a passage to get the full meaning of what the words say. And this passage is a prime example. I mean, we see the words that God's word is eternal. It is not fleeting. It isn't changing. And there's encouragement there. But when we read around this one single verse, we actually see that this, me- this verse is, is meant to be an encouragement, yes, but there's more sharpening and there's more challenge that is present there. And I want to just illustrate that for you. So we're going to turn to Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to read verses 6 through 8 so we can get a, a full picture of what God's Word is saying to us in this passage. So it says, A voice says, cry. So Isaiah is speaking and he says, you know, God is telling me to cry. And I, and, and I said, what shall I cry? And this is the message. All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God, the word of our God will stand forever. What, what an awesome, awesome picture here. And, and honestly, you know, I hope it's just amazing when we think about it that, you know, when you've heard that passage before, maybe you were thinking about grass, maybe you were thinking about the flowers in a field, but what it's saying is our flesh is the grass. It says the flowers are the things that, you know, we, that make us beautiful or presentable or the things that we think make us valuable. You could also interpret that to mean, you know, that maybe the flowers are the ones that might be put up as the best of us, maybe the, the, that we would think were the most righteous of us. But it says that those things fail and fall away. 
So why did those things fall away? Yet, you know, God's Word, it says, stands forever. And the point, I think, carries over from last week. Last week, we talked about the fact that our flesh and our heart, they will fail us. They will fall away. But God, last week we said that God is our strength and our portion forever. He will be there forever. And now we see not only will he be there, but his word will be there forever. Such an important element, you know, that the, the fleeting nature uh, and, and honestly the, the false sense of security that we get by putting our hope in our own strength. Rather, we see the eternal nature of God's power and his word. But what else is there? I think there's an even deeper layer of truth that I want us to dive into. It says that God, you know, God tells Isaiah why the, the grass or why our flesh and why the beauty would fall away. It says it's because God breathed on us. It says that they will fall away when the breath of the Lord blows on us. I think we need to realize, though, that, that God's breath is not intended to bring destruction. It's meant to bring life. And we see this in creation. I mean, when God, when, when, when God brought Adam to life, how did he do that? He breathed into his nostrils. He, he brought Adam to life by breathing into him. It's his breath that brings life. And so why does that breath cause us, our, our flesh today, in, our, in our, what we think to be beauty, to fall away? Yet it brought Adam to life. I think that, you know, what we can realize is that when God made Adam, and when he breathed into Adam's nostrils, sin had not yet entered into the world, right? This was at the very moment of creation, and sin was not there. There had not been a fall away from God. And so when Adam was, was created, when God formed him, and then when he breathed into him, at that point, Adam is without sin. And so God's breath, his, his word, it carries the power of his spirit and his presence. And so when he breathes into Adam... Because he is without sin, the power of God's Spirit and the power of His presence bring Adam to life. But for us, steeped in our sin nature, when we are confronted and overshadowed by that same Word, that same breath that carries along with it the power and Spirit of God, our flesh can do nothing but fail away. When we are confronted with that, it falls away. The, the broader picture when we look at this imagery is that the flesh and the beauty that we might you know, put our hope in or that, that we might put our, 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 our strength and we might think is our source of strength, when all of that is confronted with the truth of God's word, with the power of his spirit, it's all going to fail away. But God's word remains forever. And while that promise is encouraging and will bring us to a place of, of hope, it's sharpening for us as well. Because like we said last week, if we live subject to our flesh, it will fail away. It, it will fall away and it will fail us. So we have a choice to make. When we are confronted with God's word, there are, th- there are two things I think that can happen there. And, and two choices that you'll be able to make in that moment. Are you going to retreat into your flesh choosing death by ignoring God's truth? Or are you going to run into God's presence, choosing life by responding to his spirit? Paul kind of helps echo this imagery and this thought in his second letter to Timothy. He says this, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
Again, we are kind of just seeing this imagery of God's breath, and it shows that he breathed all scripture into existence. And so in his breath, when he gives us his word by breathing that word into existence, what he is doing is he is imbuing that word. He is giving the word of God. He is putting his spirit into it, his power into it, his presence into the word that he has given us. And because of that, because his, his breath and his power and his spirit, we know that it's meant to bring life, then his word is meant to bring life. And how does it bring life? It brings life because it is useful for teaching, because it is useful for rebuking, it is useful for correcting, it is useful for training us, for equipping us, so that we would do what God has called us to do. The purpose that we see is that as he breathes his word or he breathes his word over us, it's to tear away the flesh, to separate that from us so that what is left honors him, reflects him, looks like him, and glorifies him. We have to make sure that we allow God to tear those things away from our hearts and from our spirits that, that don't honor him and don't, don't look like him. And he, he does that through his word. We have to understand the importance of walking with God and spending time in his word. I, I honestly can't stress it enough. You know, I think it's easy uh, for us to, you know, kind of look at this and make it our goal to read God's word, you know, as often as we can. And you might even say, John, I want to read it every day. And I think that is a good goal. But listen, I don't want that to be your goal just so that you can check the box. In Isaiah chapter 30, uh, God speaks in, in, through Isaiah again talking about the people that it says that they worship God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. Their worship is based merely off of human rules. And I think that <clears throat> when, we, when we put a goal and we say, I just want to read my Bible every day for the purpose of being able to say that we've read our Bible every day, then we've completely missed it. Rather, God wants us to draw close to him, to pursue him through his word. We have to come to the realization that just like if we don't breathe, we don't live. That if we don't read and study and spend time in God's word, we don't have his life in us. And we think about that same analogy, right, of breathing. All scripture is breathed by God. His word is the fuel for our spiritual life. Without it, we will suffocate. I understand that it's easy for me to say, these words. It's easy for me to share my heart about the importance of reading God's Word and studying it and pursuing it. And, and, and honestly, you know, you won't be impacted by that reality until you've really encountered God's Word for yourself. It's my heart that God would, would get a hold of you and, and ignite inside of you a passion for His Word. But the reality is, listen, my passion for God's Word is not enough for you. You know, my, my love for Scripture and, and what I've learned in Scripture, you know, you, you might benefit, and I hope that you have benefited uh, from that under my teaching and, and under, you know, just the conversations that we might have at times. But listen, you can't be dependent on me for your relationship with God. My walk with the Lord is not a surrogate for your walk with God. My knowledge of, of Scripture, what, you know, my relationship with God looks like, you can't be dependent on that. It's not going to bring you closer to God. You have to have that, that intimate desire and that intimate passion and that intimate connection with God on your own. 
uh, Augustine, uh, an early church father, uh, one of the things that he said when he talked about, you know, ministers, when he talked about people that would be, um, you know, called to be preachers, what he said is that, you know, it's our role not to go out and slake the thirst of the people for God and for his word. Rather, it's our role to go out and make you thirsty, to make you more thirsty. And it's my prayer that as, as we talk about the, the power of God's word, when we talk about who God is, when we talk about his love and his, his grace and his mercy, that in that you are, you are, inside of you a thirst just comes up for his word, and that, that is something that draws out in you. When we think about some of this, though, I, I understand that there can be some doubt. I know that there are questions that many people, you know, have questions about God's word. And that doubt comes from a place of maybe of unfamiliarity with the scripture, but also maybe from a place of, you know, wondering, you know, it, where it comes from. Like, what is its provenance? Is, is it really valid? You know, I know many people wonder, you know, did God really inspire the Bible? Or if he did inspire the Bible, you know, and, and there's truth there, uh, and, and he had truth, was that truth then corrupted? by man when God gave it to that man and he wrote the words that are there. Well, I, you know, I know that this is a question. I've had conversations with some of you about this, and I just want to share with you uh, some hope today. Um, Chuck Swindoll, he really answered this question in, in a very um, impactful way, and so I just want to read uh, some research that I found from him uh, very briefly. So the main driver uh, for doubt that we see on some of this is a question about the origin of Scripture. And we often wonder, again, you know, did, did God really speak it? Or from that point, you know, is it true? And if it is true, was that truth corrupted uh, by the, 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 the hands and the minds of men? Well, what, what Chuck Swindoll says, this is the perfect moment for you to become acquainted with three doctrinal terms, revelation, inspiration, and illumination. Revelation occurred when God gave his truth. So when God speaks or when he, ins- when he inspired the, the, the people uh, to write, when he reveals the truth, that is the revelation. Inspiration occurred when the writers of Scripture received that truth and they recorded it. And illumination occurs today when we understand and apply his truth. I think this is a, a really important picture. And he says, the critical issue, your confidence in the Bible— is directly related to your confidence in its inspiration. How then can we be sure that God's word is free from error or corruption? How do we know that it is absolutely true and therefore is deserving of our complete trust? Paul gives us help in, in answering this question. It's a passage that we've already read today. It says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. From 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says at 2 Peter chapter 1, look at this verse. It says, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit, spoken from God. The English phrase here, moved by, is translated from an ancient Greek nautical term, pharaoh, describing ships at sea. So what he's saying is, when a ship is at sea, it's at the mercy of the winds. And so when it's at the mercy of the winds, there's the waves and the currents in the sea. It is moved by a power apart from itself. And so what we see there is that when we look at it, the writers of Scripture raise that, you know, almost like they raise the sails, and then the Holy Spirit filled those sails, and they were moved by that Spirit 
to write the truth that God had revealed to them, that he had inspired them to write. They were moved by a power outside of themselves to communicate the truth that God had given them. So what is our conclusion? Chuck uh, Swindoll goes on. He says, in the Bible, we have the preservation of a completely dependable, authoritative, and inspired text. The question each of us must ask ourselves is this, can I rely on it, especially when I go through those chaotic experiences in life? My answer, and, and I hope that it is your answer, I pray that it is your answer, is absolutely and in, 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 unreservedly yes. The wonderful thing about relying on God's book is that it gives you stability. It gives you that deep sense of purpose and meaning. No other counsel will get you through the long haul. No other truth will help you stand firm in storms of doubt and uncertainty. No other reality will give you strength for each day and deep hope for tomorrow. No other instruction has the power to give new meaning to your life. I want to just tell you that I have experienced everything that Chuck explained at the end of that, uh, at the end of that little passage that I read you. You know, when I think about my life, there have been times when I have been at the end of my rope, when I have been desperate for just a, a demonstration of God's power or his closeness, and it was a scripture that communicated that to me. I know that his word communicates life. I know that it brings meaning to my life. I know that it actually gives me new life. And so because of that, I put my hope in the Lord because of the truth that his word communicates to me. This is his gift to me. It is what he gives me in his word. It, it, it shows his love to me. And because of that, I want to read it. I want to have a part of it. I want it to be a part of me. Another way that um, I think helps us in this area, you know, I, you know, you know how passionate I am about the Bible, and we've done some, you know, like truth exercises together, right? Where you know we pull one scripture uh, from one part of the Bible, we take another scripture from a different part of the Bible, and we work them together. We kind of bang them against each other until the truth falls out, so that we can understand the deeper truth that God is wanting to help us to see. Well, Melanie, uh, actually this week, you know, knowing you know what this uh, sermon topic was going to be about. She tagged me in a post on Facebook, and it's the picture that you see on your screen right now. And what the screen, what it, what it shows is a kind of a, a data graph, if you will, of all of the connections in Scripture, 63,779 cross-references. Each of those individual lines. You see the white lines at the bottom? These are the different chapters in the Bible from Genesis all the way through the end of Revelation. The, the color of the line indicates how far the cross-reference is from one another. And when you think about this, 63,000, almost 64,000 connections. Listen, there are only 31,000 verses in the Bible. So this means that each one of them has at least two other connections in Scripture. What an awesome picture to see. And you would think that you know, this would be a, a, a marvel if the Bible was written by one person, if one author had penned all of those words, but it wasn't. There were 40 different authors across 1,500 years covering more than you know, 5,000 years of history, and it's across three different continents. And in, in all of that, there are still 64,000 connections confirming and affirming every word. This could only happen because God inspired it. This could only happen because God's Spirit was in it, because he told the writers what to write. 
we see this picture and we recognize that this, this word, it was inspired and imparted by God himself. It helps to illustrate something else as well. Uh, not only is God's word enduring or everlasting or eternal, but it's unchanging. It's constant. And, when, and, and I just want to walk you through some passages that, that help illustrate that. In Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, it says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said it? And he, has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? When we look at this, it shows that God is constant and his word is also constant because his word comes from him. We know that he does not change and therefore his word does not change. What he says, he will do. Psalm 33 says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. I love that it says the counsel of the Lord, it stands. And not only does it stand, I mean, that's a strong enough statement by itself, but it stands forever. His counsel, his words, the things that he says and, 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 and gives to us through his spirit, it stands forever. It is unchanging. It stands firm and true forever. Going on in Psalm 119, verse 89, it says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Forever, your word is firmly fixed. It's not just firm and it's not just fixed. It is firmly fixed. And for how long? Forever. We look at this and it's not just a redundant statement about God's word. No, it is there demonstrating the unchanging constancy and security of God's word. In Hebrews chapter 6, it says God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. It's impossible for God to lie because his word remains and will always remain unchangeable. It is there. It is guaranteed what he says he will do. We can take hold of that hope and we know that we can be encouraged by God's word. Another two verses that help show the fact that God's word does not change. In James chapter 1, every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Every gift comes from God. God's word is his gift. And because there is no variation or change in God, then there is no variation or change in the gift that he gives. There is no variation in the word that emanates from him. And we know that we will not see fluctuation in it and that we will see that his word is secure. And finally, in 2 Timothy chapter, chapter 2, it says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So what he has said, he will do. He cannot deny what he has said by acting in a different way. Way. Even when we are not faithful, and how many of us have not been faithful to God? How many of us have, have stepped outside of his word or his will or done something that we knew we should not do? But even in that place of us being unfaithful, God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. His word is secure. When we look at this, the, the beauty in all of these passages is not just the message that they bring individually, but their collective message. When we look at this, God does not change, and therefore his word does not change. It remains, and it will remain true. It is a gift 
from him and it is in him and in his word there is no variation god is faithful and he will remain true and faithful to his word and god cannot deny himself and he will always be true to his word but there is an additional wonder in these words that i think we need to realize so going back to that illustration we look at the cross references or those various connections in scripture we just went through you know five, six different passages and these six different passages they span 1500 years four or five different authors across a couple continents look at this numbers moses wrote that in the mid 1400s in the desert of sinai psalm 33 and psalm 119 david wrote those uh, between 980 and 970 bc Hebrews chapter 6, we actually don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, it was long thought that Paul might have written it, but because no one signed it, no one said this is who's writing it, it's still uh, a question mark. But it was written you know, between 64 and 69 AD, and it was written to the Jews in Rome, Jewish Christians in Rome. James chapter 1 was written by James, the brother of Jesus, in 45 AD, and it was written in Jerusalem. 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul wrote that in 67 AD from a Roman jail cell before his death. And all of these scriptures, these, just these six examples, they carry the same message, though they were written in completely different times by completely different people. And the only way that the unity that we see in those words, the only way that it's there is because the same Spirit inspired it, because God breathed every single word. And when He breathed it, it brings life. So because of that truth, you know, I, I encourage you, listen, I don't want you to cower when you're confronted with God's truth. And, and, and when we are confronted with His truth, it, there will be times when it reveals things in our life that need to change. But rather than being like Adam and Eve that run and hide in the light that comes from God and his word, let us run to him. Let us allow that light to, to burn away the darkness, to tear away our flesh so that we can be encouraged and, and grow in him. We have to realize that God's word, it facilitates our spiritual growth and transformation. Formation. It's important for us to realize that this is his its purpose, the point of, of intimacy with him. It facilitates the transformation. And the beauty of it is that while God's word is facilitating our transformation, in the spirit that, that he speaks in that word, and the spirit that comes in us as we are communing with him, we can continue. That transformation, it, it, God doesn't wait for the transformation to be over, to have a relationship with us. Rather, it's through our relationship that we are transformed. And the word that he provides for us facilitates the connection that we see in the relationship. This is actually illustrated in the book of Ezekiel, chapter uh, 37. Now, Ezekiel was a prophet, and God had taken Ezekiel to a valley of dry bones. And there were so many bones in the valley. God says to Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel looks to God and says, God, only you know. Only you know. You are the only one. that You know that these, these bones, they're dry. They're very dry is what it says. And Ezekiel says, God, only you know and only you can bring life. Well, it, it says this in, in Ezekiel 37 verses 4 through 6. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. 
This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will become and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So Ezekiel, he's prophesying to these dead and dry bones. And God says that his breath would come over these bones and bring them to life. Well, why does his breath bring life in this situation? But back to Isaiah at the very beginning, when we talked about that at the beginning of, of today's message, why does his breath in that instance tear away or cause our flesh to fail? Well, I think it's important that we go to the very beginning of the prophecy. What did Ezekiel say to the bones? He said, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Hear what God says. It comes down to the hearing and receiving of God's word. You see, when we receive God's word, when we study it, when we, when we pursue it, when we take it into ourselves, when we like, understand and know what his word says and we allow him to commune with us by his word, when that happens, that is when the Spirit can bring life. When we look at this, uh, we understand in Ezekiel because they, the bones heard the word. And then in hearing the word, they assembled themselves together. It says that the bones began to, to come together and then, you know, the tendons and then everything else that was there. They, they assembled, they ordered themselves according to the word. And once they did that, then God told Ezekiel in, his, his, in Ezekiel 37, prophesy to the wind, prophesy to the breath, prophesy to my spirit and bring life to these once dead bones. What an awesome statement that we need to realize that the Spirit will revive us when we order our lives according to God's Word. And we can understand or we can rest assured that He will do that when we respond to Him. We've already talked about the fact that His Word is eternal. We've already talked about the fact that when He makes a promise in, in, in Scripture, whether it's in the Old Testament or New Testament, those might have been written 2,000 years ago, but you know what? It's relevant and applicable in our life. That, that statement of, remember, He revealed the truth. They were, the writers were inspired when they received the truth, and that truth is illuminated in our life when we hear it, and when we apply it to our lives today. We discussed that his word is unchanging, that it is firmly fixed, and so what is there is secure. His promises that he makes in Scripture, they are relevant and applicable to our lives, and we know that his word does not return void. His word tells us that when he gives a promise, when he speaks truth, he will see it to fruition. In Isaiah 55, it says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return, uh, do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. I love this picture, just like the water that comes down from heaven, just like the rain that comes down and causes, you know, what is in the soil to spring forth and produce fruit. God's word will come down and it will cause what's inside of our hearts. It established there and planted there by his spirit. His word will come in and cause that to produce fruit in our life. But that can only happen. 
That can only happen when we take that word into ourself. When we have allowed his word to come in and penetrate our heart, to, to be part of us, and when we pursue it. Once we have done that, then his spirit will bring that to life. I just encourage you today. The options are, are plain and simple. We can treat God's word like it is inconsequential. We can treat God's word like just another book. We can treat God's word as something that, you know, we hear from a preacher or we look online when someone shares a a scripture image or something like that, but it's not a priority. When that happens, what will happen, you know, when we do that, what will happen is when we are confronted by his word, when God breathes over us, our flesh and all that we think is valuable will fade away, but only God's word will remain. Or we can, like the bones in Ezekiel 37, We can order our lives according to his word so that when his breath comes over us, there will be life. The only kind of life, the God kind of life, the only life that he can bring. I challenge you today, if you have never received that life, that you would take a moment and you would pray with me and ask God to change your heart. Ask God to come into your heart and forgive you of your sins. If you have prayed that prayer, but you realize that you're not pursuing God through his word, you're not you know, making that a priority in your life, you're, not, you're, you're putting your hope in your flesh that you know is going to fail away, take today, let today be the day where you begin to pursue God. Let him continue to create a fire inside of you, a passion inside of you for his word that honestly like, can never be satisfied that you are going to want to go after him more and more and more and more. That's what he wants in his connection with you. Let's pray. God, I come to you today, and I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for his sacrifice on the cross. I thank you that he came to this earth. I know that I am a sinner. I know that I have done things that do not honor you. I know that I am uh, not, not in a relationship with you. Lord, I ask you to forgive me of my sins, to take those sins away. Make me your child. I believe that Jesus came to this earth. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. I believe that because of his shed blood, my sins have been washed away. And I believe that he rose again on the third day, God, securing an eternal hope that I'll be with you forever in heaven. God, forgive me of my sins and help me, Lord, to walk after you and to to be your child. Teach me what it means to follow you. Create in me a passion for you and your word, Lord, that I am always only ever pursuing you and nothing else. In Jesus' name. For those that want to just pray and ask God to just forgive them for not pursuing him through his word and want to just, you know, rededicate with a passion for his word. Pray with me as well. God, I thank you for the gift of Jesus and I thank you for the gift of your word. I thank you that you have written your truth, that, that, that these words, they contain your spirit, they contain life that comes from you. Forgive me, God, for setting it aside. Forgive me for not pursuing it. Forgive me for not ordering my life according to your word. God, I just ask right now, I take the the opportunity in this moment to do that. I order my life according to your word, and I choose to do that every single day. God, I make it a priority. And as I do that, Lord, just like the bones in Ezekiel, as I am ordering my life according to your word, let your spirit come into me and make me alive, truly alive. I thank you for that continued transformation in my life, God. And I pray that you continue to walk with me every day. Help me. 
in that pursuit. In Jesus' name, amen. It's my prayer that every single day you would wake up and and talk to God and read his word and pursue him. I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, I promise you that when you do that, he will reveal himself to you in ways that you could never imagine. He will make you whole. He will fill you with his life no matter what you're going through. God bless you as you go into his word every single day.